Coming to you from the AT&T Podcast Studio, this is Long Story Short. I'm Ted Struley, the Executive Director at Oklahoma Watch. We're a statewide nonprofit news organization that specializes in investigative reporting. You're listening to our weekly podcast, which lets you hear directly from our journalists as they provide deeper insight into their recently published stories. Keaton Ross covers criminal justice and democracy for Oklahoma Watch. Last week, he reported on the Oklahoma Pardon and Parole Board approving new commutation eligibility requirements. Keaton, could you explain uh, to listeners what commutation is and who's eligible? Commutation is a process for the early release of uh, prisoners that they can apply to the Pardon and Parole Board and say that they were excessively sentenced or there were uh, circumstances uh, that weren't uh, present at trial that warrants them uh, getting a a less harsh sentence. Uh, And right now, anybody uh, who's incarcerated at the Department of Corrections is eligible to apply. Now, what prompted uh, Oklahoma's parole board to start uh, taking a closer look at their commutation practices? There was a pretty notable case uh, of a gruesome murder in uh, Chickasha of a commu- where a commutation recipient um, got out and then a few weeks later murdered three people. Um, and there were uh, there was questions about, well, it, it, there was an investigation and it was ultimately determined that he was granted commutation when he was not eligible. Uh, he applied uh, in August 2019, I believe, uh, was denied and then came up a few months later and was approved um, and was released uh, in in late 2020 or early 2021, I believe. Um, so what's supposed to happen is if you apply and you're denied, there's supposed to be a three-year waiting period. That didn't happen in that case, and that uh, brought a lot of scrutiny to Oklahoma's commutation processes and and prompted the parole board to take a look at uh, who's eligible to apply. Well, and uh, who would be eligible or ineligible under the new rules? The new rules propose that uh, a person has to serve the lesser of five years in prison or one third of their sentence in order to apply for commutation. Um, So that's just a waiting period whenever you first arrive at prison um, basically says you have to do a little bit of time before you can argue that you deserve to uh, get out on commutation. And when uh, when might these rules go into effect? The parole board approved uh, the draft of these rules uh, about a week ago. Um, that now needs to go to the legislature for final approval because it's uh, an administrative rules. That's that's sort of the process for it. Um, there's there's a pretty good probability that that it could take effect by the summer if it if it gets through that that process in the legislature. Now the rules the board uh, ultimately approved are uh, a lot more lenient than what was initially proposed, right? That's right. Initially, uh, in what I reported on last month, uh, and and over the past few months, actually. Um, initially what they proposed was you would need a recommendation from a trial official that be a a judge or a district attorney on, on the case where they tried you or the governor in most cases to 
to even get a hearing for commutation. Of course, that's a that's a pretty significant hurdle for for most people uh, behind bars. Um, the other the other rules that that they proposed were if if you had been incarcerated for thirty years that that you could apply at that point. Um, of course, that's that's a really long time for for most people. So uh, ultimately, those rules were modified and. and a lot of people will remain eligible, um, which which um, is good news for for a lot of criminal justice reform advocates I've I've spoken with. Now, what prompted uh, the board to modify those rules uh, or the proposal anyway ahead of the meeting? There was a a significant amount of public comment uh, at a hearing that the board held early last month in January. Uh, several dozen people spoke. Uh, I believe they were initially planning to take public comment for 20 to 30 minutes and that it ultimately lasted over three hours. Um, so lots of people showed up. Um, there was a, a pretty broad range of folks from, uh, you know, people who had, had received commutations to, um, you know, folks directly, uh, involved working in the system, um, and, and the board members cited that when whenever they they voted on these new rules last week that uh, that that amount of public comment coming coming at that hearing and as well as written comment uh, swayed them to to modify uh, the proposal and keep keep a lot of people eligible to apply for commutation. Now you spoke with uh, a commutation recipient following last week's vote. What was the reaction? Uh, she told me uh, her name is Kara Chapman. She was uh, released on commutation last August in August 2023. She told me that uh, she's uh, pretty pleased with the outcome. Um, uh, mentioned that with that five years or, or one thirty year sentence, whatever's lesser, um, that makes sense just from the perspective of if you're coming into prison, it, it usually takes a few months to uh, get signed up for classes and, and programs and sort of um, get on the path towards uh, rehabilitating yourself, um, trying to improve yourself is what she told me. And from from that perspective, it makes sense that uh, if you've only been in prison for a few weeks, um, you, you probably need to do a little time, a little reflection, get um, get involved in some programs to try to improve yourself before you seek out that commutation or early release. So she was overall uh, pleased with the outcome. You also uh, talked to an attorney who specializes in commutations. Uh, what what kind of effect do they foresee if these uh, rules go into effect? She told me that uh, for the vast majority of people they that they work with, they'll they'll remain eligible under these new rules. Uh, she said she she was pretty um, pleasantly surprised with the outcome. Um, I know I mentioned earlier that there was a, a provision earlier they proposed where someone would have to serve at least 30 years. She told me she she was hoping that maybe they might reduce that to 20 years uh, before they can apply for commutation. Um, so she was she was really uh, pleased with the outcome and encouraged that uh, the public comment and input seemed to have uh, such a big impact on on the outcome in this case. All right. Well, thanks, Keaton. You can read Keaton's coverage of the pardon and parole board's changes or proposed changes to the commutation rules, as well as the rest of his coverage on criminal justice. You'll find it all on our website, oklahomawatch.org. 
Jennifer Palmer covers education for Oklahoma Watch. Her latest story is about a watchdog agency that plans to restart inspections at the Oklahoma School of Science and Mathematics, a state-operated boarding school. Uh, Jennifer, uh, your reporting on OSSM last year revealed issues with sexual harassment and bullying at the school. And your work has brought on a series of reforms over there. Remind us what you found. Right. So we had a couple of stories last year. One focused on the employees at the school who uh, many of the female employees said they faced a toxic work environment. They um, had um, issues with sexual harassment, lots of inappropriate comments that they felt like the school was not handling appropriately. And then um, to follow up on that story, we talked to a number of students over the years from that school who had similar issues um, on kind of the student side of the school where uh, professors and faculty members um, you know, were accused of mistreating some of these students and and they felt like there was no way to complain. There was no, um, you know, way to um, get any help or assistance for these students. And so uh, what's with these inspections? What's the latest? Sure. So um, the office or the Oklahoma Commission on Children and Youth, um, they are a separate state agency. Um, their, you know, whole role is to inspect facilities where children live, um, these uh, state-owned facilities. So there's a handful of those across the state, um, and they are going to restart inspections. They haven't inspected OSSM since the latest report is 2008. Um, they're actually not really sure why they stopped, um, but Either way, they are going to restart uh, this year. Their board voted to to start uh, visiting the school uh, at least once a year now. Well, how significant is that step? You know, one of the things that most surprised me in doing the stories on OSSM, I mean, I looked and looked and looked, and there were very few outside agencies coming into the school to check on these kids. Now, these are under 18 children, right? Juniors and seniors in high school, they live there. They live in dorms. Um, and really the main oversight was the school's own board. Um, there, there's no accreditors. They're not under the State Department of Education. Um, and so I think, um, you know, th- I think this is, this is, a, a, this is going to be a change, you know, to have this um, outside agency, this watchdog agency, who's specifically there looking at the safety of the kids. Do you know? Do you feel safe? Is there somebody you're scared of? You know, asking some of those questions, giving them an opportunity to voice concerns, and giving these inspectors the ability to um, hopefully resolve some concerns or bring them to uh, someone who could who could make some changes. And so, uh, when they're going in there, you talked about them looking at uh, the children's safety. Some of the questions they might ask. Uh, what what all's under that umbrella that they might be looking for? Would it cover things like the sexual harassment and bullying that uh, the school was accused of? Absolutely. Um, they, you know, they've said up front, like we're we're not there looking at academics. You know, that's not what we're about. We're there to make sure that the kids are safe and healthy. So they interview students anonymously. 
they will be talking to staff, reviewing personnel files. They look at like fire inspection reports and things like that, just to make sure that the facility is a safe place for children to be. Now, you mentioned that uh, really the only oversight of the school at the moment is its own board of directors. Uh, Is there no one else really uh, looking at OSSM? There is no one else really asking these kinds of questions for the safety of the kids. Um, and, and I think that's why we saw a couple of years ago um, a, a lot of this, um, these accusations of sexual harassment and complaints came out in a financial audit, which was really unusual um, auditors aren't there looking for that, right? Auditors are looking at the books and, and you know, making sure that the school is um, following financial laws and regulations. But a lot of the staff, um, you know, in these um, surveys and stuff kind of described this, this toxic work environment because nobody else was coming in to ask those kinds of questions. And it, so some of that, as you mentioned, came out in the financial audit and then you're reporting uh, really brought a lot of it to light, talked to a lot of uh, current and former people associated with the school. What changes has OSSM made in response to uh, all that coming to light? So there have been some changes um, as a result of our um, our reporting, as well as this lawsuit um, that is still ongoing by a former employee Um, You know, the Board of Trustees resurrected its personnel committee that's supposed to look at some of these issues. Um, They hired an outside firm to create uh, an employee handbook. Believe it or not, they'd been operating decades without an employee handbook telling employees what they can and can't do. Um, So which made it kind of difficult to, um, you know, hold them accountable for when they did the wrong thing because there was no handbook telling them they weren't supposed to do that thing. Um, They uh, did also uh, create an anonymous like um, complaint line. So students can now call this number and, um, you know, file a complaint that way. Um, And and then a couple of teachers who were highlighted in one of our stories um, for, um, you know, making some, some highly inappropriate comments to some of these students um, have agreed to retire this year, two of them. All right. How did the story come about? Yeah, so the story about the Watchdog Agency, the Oklahoma Commission on Children and Youth coming in, um, I had actually requested the report just through my reporting on the school, trying to find who's who's overseeing this uh, facility and these students. Um, and so I filed a request under the Open Records Act um, for the latest report. And they came back and said, well, the latest one we have is 2008. <laughs> and, and that kind of my request prompted the agency to really research, okay, well, why haven't we been back since 2008? Should we be going there? Is it under our, our purview? Um, they determined that, yes, it absolutely was. They don't know really what occurred between 2008 and, and 9 or 10 or so when the, the inspections stopped. Um, but they've decided to to restart those. All right. Well, thanks, Jennifer. Uh, You can read Jennifer's coverage of OSSM and the uh, new inspections that will help keep an eye on the goings-on over there, as well as the rest of her reporting on education in Oklahoma. You'll find it all at oklahomawatch.org. While you're there, you can also sign up for her weekly newsletter, Education Watch. 
Keaton Ross covers criminal justice and democracy for Oklahoma Watch. In his latest story, he wrote about an inmate murder that has raised questions about staff oversight at the state's only privately run prison. Keaton, what happened at the Lawton Correctional Facility on October 26th? Around 10.30 a.m. that morning, staff found inmate Raymond Bailey uh, dead in a trash can. Uh, this this came, um, you know, as as there were reports that something had happened and then ultimately uh, they they found him in dead mid morning. Um, and it was it was pretty shocking for for a lot of folks that that have loved ones, people, people incarcerated there. Now, uh, when did prisoner advocates start getting reports about an incident at the prison and become concerned? That started happening around early, pretty early in the morning, around uh, 7 a.m. Uh, one one pretty well-known advocate, uh, Emily Shelton, told me that she started getting messages from from folks off off of tablets that uh, something had happened, that that they thought someone had been uh, assaulted or, or possibly killed, and and that was it was pretty well known on the unit, but staff hadn't uh, done much to to look at it or. Uh, investigate. And um, so that started happening uh, pretty early in the morning on October 26. And then um, they didn't find uh, his body ultimately until uh, mid-morning around 10.30 a.m. Now, uh, were were there any indications that anybody had tried to save Bailey? So on the medical examiner's report, they they said that there was no evidence of, of life-saving efforts. Um, they found him and uh, he was uh, pretty obviously dead. And uh, so that that ruled out, among other things, any uh, intervention. It ruled out uh, um, a medical reason for his death it was pretty clearly homicide as the medical examiner saw it. Is that right? Yes, that's that's what they ultimately ruled it as was a was a homicide with no uh, no evidence of of an effort to save his life. All right. So uh, sometime maybe 730 in the morning or earlier, uh, this uh, homicide occurs. Uh, It takes three hours or more for the staff to uh, find the victim in a trash can. Right. Um, How often are the staff supposed to be checking on on cells and, and checking on inmates? So uh, I I asked the the GEO group, ultimately got no comment and then went to the Department of Corrections, who told me that they they don't give they they wouldn't release an exact time frame of when they do checks, citing security reasons. But they told me they are supposed to do checks a minimum of five times a day with at least one overnight check. Um, so, looking at that time frame, um, that it started starts to raise some questions of if that was. Um, and, and oversight there where if they were doing those sec- checks properly, um, there's proper oversight. Maybe they, they would have noticed something something was off there sooner. Now, how much do we know about the murder itself? And has anybody been uh, charged with that? Anybody held responsible? As far as details of what caused the, the murder, um, I mean, there's been some some speculation. Nothing I can I can report at this point. Um the the Oklahoma Department of Corrections has has done their own investigation. They forwarded that to the Comanche County District's Attorney's Office, and 
I've been told that they're expected to file uh, formal charges sometime in March. So uh, hopefully sometime in the next couple of weeks, we'll know more about uh, the circumstances uh, and, and who among staff and or uh, prisoners is, is liable for this. Oh, you mentioned staff. Has any staff been uh, implicated in the incident? The Department of Corrections, they, they didn't give me details on the exact reason for their termination, but they did confirm that three staff at the Lawton prison were uh, fired as, as a result of this incident. All right. And uh, I uh, know you mentioned this, but remind us again when we might see some kind of charges from the DA. Uh, likely sometime in March is what I'm told. All right. Well, thanks, Keaton. You can read Keaton's coverage of the murder at the Lawton Correctional Facility and all of his other reporting on criminal justice. You'll find it on our website, OklahomaWatch.org. While you're there, you can also sign up for Keaton's weekly newsletter, Democracy Watch. You've been listening to Long Story Short, a weekly podcast that helps you get deeper into the investigative stories reported by Oklahoma Watch, which you can find on the web at oklahomawatch.org. This episode was recorded at the AT&T Podcast Studio. For Oklahoma Watch, I'm Ted Struley. Thanks for listening. Thanks for listening.